So we actually have the solutions. What we need to ask ourselves is, do we have the courage to actually demand those solutions from our political leaders? We have let them get off scot-free too long. We have to hold them accountable. Welcome to The Black Agenda. I'm your co-host, Devin Dito, along with my co-host, Adrian Guest. And we are back again today with another great guest on the show. And today we are discussing a hot topic uh, that every administration, every presidential administration has tried to tackle uh, with moderate success. And so that is the war on drugs. And so um, today we're excited to be joined by Ms. Amy Fettig. Uh, she is the executive director of the Sentencing Project. And so before we get into the interview and get you know, into her background, we just want to let you know about her background, actually. And so, like I say, Amy uh, is the current executive director of the Sentencing Project, but she is also a human rights lawyer and leading expert on criminal justice reform. And so prior to joining the Sentencing Project, uh, she served as deputy director for the ACLU's National Prison Project. And just to wrap it up here, Amy also founded and directed the ACLU Stop Solitary, and she has also served as an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University University Law Center. And she currently ha- and she has a BA uh, with a distinction from Carleton College and a master's from Columbia University and a JD, a Juris Doctorate from Georgetown University. So decorated expert she is, and so we're, we're excited to have her on the show. Well, it's exciting to be here, Devin and Adrian, and uh, to just hear that I was in school for a really, really long time. That was <laughs> embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> if there's any, if there's any consolation, <laughs> if there's any consolation I'm about to get in that uh, process. I'm working on an MBA and then going to work on an MPA JD. So I'll, I'll be oh, I'll yeah. be following your footsteps. Uh, no, you're going to be exceeding me. That is, that is very <laughs> impressive, Adrian. Thank you. <laughs> Very much. So not as much schooling as you two, but <laughs> uh, but so let's kind of, you know, get into it here, Amy. So our first segment here, you know, like I say, the topic of the episode is the war on drugs. And, and that is something we've all heard about. We've watched it on television. Some of us have watched it play out in our neighborhoods. And, mm. you know, many people rightly credit, uh, you know, President Nixon with starting the war on drugs, really coining that term and defining it. And so, but even though he may have started it, other presidents, namely Ronald Reagan, really kind of amped it up to another level that we hadn't really seen before. Uh, And this was really during the crack epidemic of the 80s, you know, Reagan came along. And then also really with the help of the first lady, uh, Nancy Reagan, they kind of ushered in this era of zero tolerance, even coining the term, you know, just say no when talking about drugs. And so the thinking then, Amy, really was that law enforcement needed to operate with sort of a, you know, like an iron fist. We need to be as as tough on crime as we can to stop people from using drugs. And so this really led to zero tolerance policies all across the country. And so just to tell our listeners, just so we can have a full story, can you kind of take us back to the, you know, the 70s and 80s and just kind of describe that environment of what was happening during that time you know, that really led law enforcement to latch on to these zero tolerance policies and just how they kind of, you know, those policies, while they were started in, say, the late 70s and 80s, 
really kind of stayed in place even after George, you know, uh, Bill Clinton was elected. And so just kind of tell that story, at least of how this war on drugs actually got started. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I would argue that it, it's not yet finished. Uh, unfortunately, mm. unfortunately, we see the legacy of it everywhere, but let, let's go back to, to the seventies. And, and, and first I, I really want to be totally honest with you, Devin, my perspective is that the war on drugs, yes, it did start in the seventies and, and maybe, uh, uh, Nixon can, can ha- take dubious credit for beginning the war on drugs. But when I think about the war on drugs, and this is after over 20 years of working in prisons in this country, actually it's 25 now. Uh, I don't think the war on drugs is, is what we should be calling it. We should be calling it a war on black people. That is much more accurate. But why the war on drugs was started, why it continued to be perpetrated for decades uh, despite the fact that it was very obvious that it did not actually do what it purported, to, what it was purported to, to be about, uh, and why it continues today, and why we have such a hard time stepping away uh, from such bad policy that hurts so many people. But back in the 1970s, it is true that America was um, experiencing a youth bump and experiencing a bit of a crime bump. Uh, And so that crime bump was used uh, by politicians like uh, President Nixon, but many others, uh, to scare people and primarily to scare white suburbanites about an increase in crime and what that meant. But remember the context of the 1970s coming out of the success of the civil rights movement the success of the the women's rights movement, where people who previously were marginalized in society, black people, women, uh, people of color generally, uh, were getting more and more rights. They're getting more access to political power. They're getting better laws to protect them uh, from what had essentially been state-sponsored terror, uh, or at least terror that was ignored widely uh, by the police and others. Uh, So there was a rise in rights and there was a rise in democracy. So what happened as a result of of that increase in rights was very much a reaction against the success of the civil rights movement. Lo and behold, and not many years later, you see the reactionism of the war on drugs and the coding of crime to actually stand in for black people. So people could be tough on crime and claim they weren't racist. Uh, and claim that, that what they were doing, what, what was a race-neutral policy, and that it wasn't targeted specifically at Black people. That wasn't true at all. It wasn't true at all. The, the war on drugs was very much uh, a war on Black people. And we see the results today, and we've seen them for the last 40 decades, the marginalization of, of Black people, the undermining of their political power, whether it's because so many people are locked up. we got 5 million people who are disenfranchised because of interaction with the criminal justice system today and hundreds of thousands more who, who are sitting in jails who have the right to vote, who don't get to exercise that franchise in a country that purports to care about democracy. Uh, I would argue that that was very deliberate. Uh, and it was a, leg- a legacy of Jim Crow recreated through the war on drugs, through the criminal justice system. And so we see starting in the 1970s with the so-called war on drugs, a ramping up of enforcement for very low-level crimes. And you see a massive, massive increase in the number of people 
who are in our prisons and jails in any given day. Historically anomalous for the United States. We have the highest incarceration rate in the world, and we have had for four decades, and that is very related to the war on drugs. But I also want to give a context. The war on drugs was purportedly just about dealing with people who sell drugs. But that is not the whole account of who got swept up in the war on drugs and the consequent enormous infusion of resources that went into law enforcement in our country, that went into building prisons, that went into building supermax solitary confinement units, uh, that went into expanding the stretch of our police state so that black and brown communities around the country, but primarily concentrated in urban centers, were subject to much more police control than they ever historically had been. And that result was people coming in on drug charges, yes, but people coming in on any kind of charges uh, so that we have our prisons and jails are starting to fill in the 1980s more than they ever had before. We have massive overcrowding. And as a result of that, then we have riots because people are you know, treated so, so poorly, so inhumanely in these institutions that were not designed to build them. Uh, and that did not have the resources to actually take care of them. So we see the warehousing that starts, and we we see the, the building of supermax prisons that are intentionally built to keep people in solitary confinement, not for a day, not for a week, but for years and decades. Again, unprecedented in our history. So all of that is part of the war on drugs, which is done in the name of public safety, in the name of stopping drugs and crime in our communities, but in fact, that didn't happen at all. What we ended up doing was increasing the net of people who would be impacted by the criminal justice system, primarily people of color, primarily poor people, were swept up into uh, this war, so-called war on drugs. And once in, never out. Once you, the criminal justice system touches you, it is very, very hard to come back into the community, first of all, because you're not supported in doing so. Second of all, because suddenly you can't get jobs, you can't get benefits, you don't get any support. And so a cycle of imprisonment happens. And oh, by the way, you've been completely brutalized and traumatized by inhumane prisons. Uh, so we see that the war on drugs cast a wider net. It brought people in, it primarily brought people in who have substance use disorder or who are low level um, people within the, the drug economy. What it didn't do, and we now know this, and I, I hope folks in, uh, who are listening out there take this into account, that there's now decades of research and irrefutable proof that the war on drugs not only didn't end uh, illegal, the illegal drug markets at all, had no impact on illegal drug activity in this country. This is uh, the Social Research Council has taken a look at this. It did not end the use of drugs by any means. In fact, it played no role in helping people recover. And if you've ever talked to people who are in prison, they barely ever get any drug treatment. Uh, so it played no public health safety role. What it did was draw in enormous numbers of poor people of color, primarily African American, young African American men so that they would be permanently uh, disenfranchised, permanently less able to get jobs, less able uh, to achieve social mobility, and less able uh, to support their communities. Uh, so that you see the devastation that happened as a result of the war on drugs, 
uh, not ending crime, not ending illegal drug markets, not not discouraging people from using drugs, but hurting a community very specifically for decades. And now I think the question for this country is what are we going to do differently and how are we going to pay reparations to the black community that was deliberately targeted by a war on drugs that is nothing but a failure and has caused nothing but pain and human suffering for no good social reason. You know, I, I, I love how you, you know, phrase that, Amy, because, you know, listening or listening to you just paint a great picture and then taking it back to what a top Nixon aide said about what they were doing. I mean, he said, you know, did we know we were lying about the drugs? And he said, of course, uh, the whole point of it was really to criminalize being black um, by associating drugs, you know, with black people and, you know, allowing them to be able to raid people's homes, break up meetings, arrest leaders. And you just framed it so well. So it's like in order for us to really understand this epidemic of, you know, the war on drugs, uh, as we as we you know phrase it, we really have to understand it's really a war on being black. And it's it's so unfortunate because we, we we always say that America isn't a racist nation, but it's like all of the policies that we have, you know, seem to have racial ties. Oh yeah, and and whoever's saying that America isn't a racist nation is not paying attention, or they're lying to themselves, or they're lying to somebody else. Uh, that you simply cannot square our history, and you cannot square our present without seeing that that race plays such a huge huge role and racism plays such a huge role um, in our criminal justice system, in our communities, in our education system, in our economy. There's nowhere that it doesn't touch. And so when we're talking about the war on drugs, when we're talking about the fact that we are the world's greatest incarcerator, the land of the free, uh, we have to talk about solutions that center race racism and what we're going to do about the, these decades, decades, centuries of white supremacy that are now threatening to actually undermine our entire democratic fab- fabric. Uh, you know, it's sort of the chickens are coming home to roost and we have an opportunity to do things differently, radically differently, because that's what's required. Or if we fail to do that, we really have to question what this nation is going to turn into. Exactly. And I think, you know, there are, of course, not surprisingly, there are a lot of people who don't want to hear the history. You know, <laughs> some people want to whitewash, sanitize the history books and act as though, you know, America started after 1960 and everything was just perfect and nothing, you know, racism went away and those things don't exist. And we're just kind of making it up and being victims. Um, and one of the reasons why we wanted to have this conversation was just to kind of pull back the layers and say, OK, we've all heard the term war on drugs. Well, what exactly happened? We know a lot of black people were locked up, but we don't know the with you know how with precision like you know execution they were able to extract black bodies out of neighborhoods and put them in prison, you know, with I mean just really unbelievable success with this, you know, war program, you can whatever you want to call it. Um, one of the things that you know has come to light now is it's really w- funny because you know, we're talking about the 70s and 80s here, but this war is really kind of still going on. And even with the last presidential election, you know, the 94 crime bill was back in the news. You know, it's like being out, you know, it's like going through history again. Here we are discussing what happened, what was in the 94 crime bill and how the, you know, President Joe Biden end up being one of the, you know, the spot, the voting for the bill. You know, there was a lot of people who did. 
but you know, he didn't have a great answer for why he did it. Um, and so if you could just for just a historical context, just kind of take us back to go, you know, you don't have to go into great detail, but just what was the thinking behind the 94 crime bill and what did that add on to an already, you know, mass incarceration war on drug war on black people problem that the country was already executing and experiencing. Exactly. Well, I mean, the 1990s was really sort of the apogee of, of, of the war on drugs, where things were out of control. And it is true that crack had hit uh, the drug markets in the late 80s, and, and, and people were hurting, and people were dying, uh, and it was a highly addictive drug, uh, but no different than cocaine, which was also running rampant in the country at the same time. Um, with crack, however, it was very concentrated in black urban environments. And so it was seen as a black problem. Uh, it was seen as something that had to be dealt with, rather than recognize, quite frankly, uh, that drug use across race and class is pretty much the same. Um, and we've known that for decades and decades and decades. If you actually want to deal with drug problems, you have to make treatment available for all races and all classes, and it should be on demand and repeatedly. Uh, so we never dealt with it as, as uh, a public health matter, and we still don't. Uh, things have changed a little bit in the last few decades, but we still do not successfully deal with substance abuse disorder, which is a well-known human problem uh, that can be treated. We don't do it. In the 19, late 1980s and the 1990s, we were especially not providing treatment. Uh, that is when substance use disorder was blatantly um, about criminal justice enforcement, enforcement, but more importantly, and this is the context, it was about politics. <laughs> because people could get elected, and they always have, through fear. And so there was kind of a race to the bottom, regardless of whether or not you were a Republican or a Democrat. Um, and remember Willie Horton back in the 1980s. Oh, gosh. Had been yeah. used to basically defeat Michael Dukakis. Uh, and he was a black man who had recidivated. Uh, it really wasn't about uh, treatment. It wasn't about uh, actually providing public safety. It was about inflaming the electric in a racist way that was coded. Because nobody said, oh, Willie Horton's a black man. Uh, they said, we got to be tough on crime. And so there was a race to the bottom between the Republicans and Democrats, everyone vying for, I can be tougher on crime. I can be tougher on crime. Instead of thinking, well, I can be smart on public safety. How am I actually going to create public safety and deal with a public health crisis? Nobody was doing that. Instead, they were using fear uh, mediated through black bodies in order to get elected. And so that is what happened with, you know, and Bill Clinton, and the Democrats were just as guilty, if not more, because they were afraid that they were going to be seen as soft on crime. And so in some ways, the Democrats were actually worse. Uh, and for many decades, actually, they, 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 it was a one-up-upmanship of how, how tough you can be, how many more laws you can pass to have harsher and harsher penalties. Uh, and so one of the other upshots of the war on drugs is that we now have far harsher sentencing laws than we ever did before. 
uh, this, uh, historically anomalous that we now have more people serving life sentences in this country, over 200,000 people, than we did in our entire prison system. One in seven people in this country is serving a life sentence. And you're probably not going to be surprised to learn that the vast majority, two-thirds of those people serving life sentences in this country, people of color. And that is a result of a, largely the laws that were passed, like the 1994 Crime Bill, uh, that inflicted harsher penalties, mandatory minimums, so that there was no discretion. Uh, if you were convicted of a certain offense, no matter how really low level it was or how low level you were, you got the same harsh penalty. You got the mandatory minimum. You also had things like habitual offender laws so that, you know, if that uh, California popularized this, but that the, the feds did too, three strikes and you're out. Yeah. So no matter what your crimes were, and they could be very, very low level. And remember, there was intensive policing of black communities. And this is true today as well. So that young black people are much more likely to have a criminal record. So when you have that third offense, you hit a habitual offender law that is brought by a prosecutor who has the discretion to charge you or not. So we see black people getting charged much more often under these three strikes and you're out laws. And oftentimes that meant that uh, now we have people serving life sentences for very low level drug crimes, for nonviolent crimes and, and for violent crimes, because part of the war on drugs was to create a cycle of trauma and violence in our communities uh, that has brought more and more people into our, our state prison systems, especially not for drug charges, for, for crimes of violence. But those violent crimes are very much a part of the social dislocation, the disinvestment, the inhumanity of our system. Uh, so that when we look at our criminal justice system and that 1994 crime bill and all those harsh penalties that were passed, especially in the late 80s and the 90s, although they, there's some in the 2000s too, uh, we have to see it as part of a whole system uh, that has been built up around the war on drugs, that has been justified by the war on drugs, but in fact really has nothing to do with drug addiction, drug treatment, or, or oftentimes drug sales. Uh, it is more about disinvestment in communities. It is more about that criminal, the, the net that the criminal justice system passes over communities and, and the people that it touches so that you can't ever get free of it, so that it's like a scarlet letter. Uh, one, one interaction with the criminal justice system oftentimes means a lifetime of interaction that is then passed on to your children. Uh, so it's breaking that up breaking that cycle is going to require massive investment. It is going to require us to roll back those harsh sentencing laws to get rid of the mandatory minimums that we saw pass in the 80s and 90s. And frankly, to decriminalize drugs, but also to take a look at all of our punishments and say, look, we don't need to be sending people away for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 80 years. I mean, why are judges handing out sentences of 500 years to human beings who generally have a lifespan of 85 years. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's, it's totally part of that hubris, part of that, um, you know, we use fear, we use the criminal justice system to punish people, to penalize them, uh, and also to disenfranchise and disempower them. Uh, so when we were thinking about 
rolling back the war on drugs, we need to think at every level of the criminal legal system, from the police to the prosecution, to the courts, to the prisons, to what happens to people when they try to return home and the community is set up to make them fail, whether it's on probation, parole, or just just release, where you've got, you're dealing with so many, the badges and incidents uh, of criminal justice involvement. You're absolutely right, Amy. I mean, there's so much that we've got to do to kind of fix what's going on. And what we're going to do, we're going to take our first break and we're going to come back into our second segment. We want to, you know, kind of dissect a little bit of drug policy, looking at it on the international and domestic stage. So listeners, we're going to give you your first break. Stick with us. We'll be right back. We absolutely appreciate your support. You are the foundation and our efforts work to better your communities. Tell your family and friends so we can all work to bring progress. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. We're going to get into our second segment. We're joined by Amy Fedick. She's the executive director of the Sentencing Project. So, Amy, we've kind of framed the second segment um, looking at current domestic and international drug policy um, because we know that we have a lot of stuff going on here in our country. But, you know, for my question, I was kind of looking more broadly um, because I know that, you know, you, you mentioned it in the first segment, decriminalizing drugs. And there's a lot of examples like Germany and Portugal, who have also who've actually seen positive results by decriminalizing drugs outside of marijuana. Um, they've seen drops in HIV spread, fewer overdoses, uh, even less drug use problems. Germany is even very progressive by having drug consumption rooms. Addicts come in, bring their own drugs, and they can actually do those drugs in a safe environment. Now, I know America is you know very far from being that progressive. But do you think that that's what it's really going to take to get these sorts of results that countries like Germany and Portugal are seeing? I, I do, Adrian, because what you're seeing in Germany and Portugal is embracing the, the very real idea that substance abuse disorder is a public health issue. It's not a moral issue. It's a disease. It impacts some people more than others, but, but so does heart disease. So does diabetes. We've got to remove this sort of moral overlay that the United States has, has used uh, to deal with substance abuse disorder. Um, because quite frankly, the way we've been doing it for the last 50 years, we know it doesn't work. It's a massive failure on every single level. And the human and fiscal costs that we have inflicted on ourselves as a result of our failure to, to use a true public health uh, lens to deal with substance use disorder is appalling. It's, it's actually unforgivable. I'm quite sure in future generations that, that our time right now, we are going to be harshly judged for how foolish, how backwards, how uninformed we were about how you really deal with substance use disorder. So we need to take those measures. And it, it's, it's going to be hard because of, frankly, uh, the historical legacy in this country. Uh, and again, getting back to, would we really be in this position? Would we really use this false overlay of some kind of moral quandary about drug use and substance use disorder if we weren't using our criminal justice system 
to undermine Black communities and undermine Black political power and economic power. Um, so if we really cared about substance use disorder, if we really, really thought that we wanted to remove drug use from our communities because it does hurt people, we would take the pathway that Germany and Portugal and other countries have have boldly explored and, and proved to be right. Right. And that's and that's one of the things, like you say, when you look at it, it's kind of how we treat our public health system, too, in that we don't necessarily treat you know, we don't do the prevention part of it. We don't prevent right. the diseases, just like we don't try to prevent crime and we don't try to prevent poverty. We'll rather wait until those things happen and then we'll try to treat, you know, the disease or treat crime by, you know, putting more, you know, policemen on the street or handing out harsher penalties rather than trying to get to the underlying problem of why are people committing these crimes, you know, committing, you know, robbing and things like that. They don't just people don't grow up and just want to do that. You know, the products of their environments. And and like you said, it's it's kind of become this moral thing of like, well, you know, you stole from the store. Now you're a bad person or you were walking around with weed in your pocket. You're somehow now a low life criminal all of a sudden or a thug, as we like to call them. Um, Right. right. It's using the absolutely wrong lens for dealing with a public health issue. And I I think, Devin, you get to a, a really key issue that we we haven't addressed, and that's because of the fact that we don't have a a functioning public health system in this country, um, either for medical issues or mental health issues. And when we're talking about the criminal legal system uh, and drug use in particular, we have to also talk about the fact that we have no existing public mental health system except for jails. The largest mental health hospitals in this country are our jails. And that is the last place that you would ever want yourself or anybody you loved to be treated for a mental health problem because it only makes people worse. Um, And you see, quite frankly, people who don't have access to to mental health care starting to self-medicate with drug use. I mean, I saw it again and again in my clients uh, who, who didn't need to be in prison. They did not need to be in jail. What they needed was actual mental health care but because they couldn't get it, they often it was easier to access drugs than it was to have a psychiatrist or to get some therapy or if they needed it to have crisis housing in a mental health hospital instead of a jail. But what we do in this country now, because we have no functioning public health system, we have no functioning mental health system by and large, we use the police and the prisons and the jails instead of treating people with the health care that they need to be whole. Um, it is, it's a massive, it, you know, talk about moral failing. It's a massive moral failing that the richest country in the history of this planet does not have a functioning public health system. And we're, we're seeing that play out in COVID. Would we be in this situation now if we actually had invested our, our, the billions and billions of dollars uh, that we have invested in prisons and jails? into actually building stuff that helps people like healthcare and hospitals and mental health treatment centers. Um, Those are much, much better investments. So when we're thinking about the war on drugs, we should also think about the fact that instead of building up our public healthcare system, which we could have done, we tore that down. We tore down what actually existed 
and we invested almost straight in to our prisons and our jails and our police. Those are all systems that are uniquely incompetent at dealing with healthcare issues. They should never be asked to do that, frankly. They're set up to fail and fail they do. I, you can hear the, the passion and the energy coming through, <laughs> coming over. But no, it's, 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 I love it because that's what these issues need if we're going to figure it out, you know. And, and just, you know, quickly, I just want to get your take on it too. We're talking, it's perfect because we're talking about public health. We're talking about mental health treatment and things. But what we do find interesting is that we saw the response to the crack ep- epidemic and, and you talked about it. There was the concentration of crack cocaine in black neighborhoods. It was there. And the response was, we just need to stamp it out with more, more police, harsher sentences. It was a totally different response than what we're seeing with the opioid crisis, where right. now the, the response to that is, well, we want to treat them kind of with, with we're going at more of a, of a treatment aspect of where we want to fix this. This is a disease. It's a national emergency, much softer language. We're not, you don't see anybody talking about sending folks away for, you know, abusing prescription drugs. And so just right. quickly, if you could just kind of talk about some of the differences you see in the in the response to the opioid crisis and the crack epidemic of the 80s and 90s. Yes. And it is marked. Uh, now, is it perfect? Is it much? Is it Germany or Portugal? No, it is not. Not quite. <laughs> uh, so we have seen like record numbers, for example, of white women come into the to, to prisons and jails during the opioid epidemic. But the change of heart is kind of astonishing. Uh, you know, I would like to think that after decades of a failed war on drugs, uh, that part of the changes that we recognize that it that the old way of doing things was an absolute failure and that we need a new approach. Uh, but I know this country too well. <laughs> I have lived here too long uh, to not realize uh, that it is absolutely facilitated. This change of heart is facilitated by the fact that it is primarily white people who have been impacted most directly by the opioid epidemic. We do not hear about white children as super predators. We did hear that about black children in the 80s and 90s, and we are starting to hear it again as COVID-19 has resulted in an uptick in crime. And we are seeing those same tropes being played out again and again, and and it's dangerous. We know that where that road leads, and so we have to push back and point out the fact that, you know, the difference between how the opioid epidemic is being treated, how the crack cocaine epidemic was treated is clearly based on race. So clearly based on race. And we're seeing, again, an uptick in crime uh, unrelated to the opioid epidemic, perhaps, uh, but probably not so much, uh, but completely related to COVID-19 and the trauma, uh, the death, the destruction, dislocation that this global pandemic has, has wrought on our communities. And on our country as a whole, not surprisingly, there's an uptick in crime. But again, that overreaction, that desire to demonize and that desire to use crime as a coded way of talking about race and being racist, frankly. Uh, so, so that kind of trope we have to push back on immediately. And I think it is important to say, hey, look, I think it's great that people want to treat opioid addiction as a public health issue, but we got to treat 
oh, we have to treat crime and violence as a public health issue too. It's all about public health, all connected to public safety. And quite frankly, our use of the criminal justice system as a way of dealing with inequality and racism, uh, lack of public health care, lack of, of good public education, uh, lack of community investment, uh, all those things that, that actually are driving violence in our society, are driving crime in our society, if we could actually recognize that we need to treat that as a public health issue and as a public good, we'd actually go a long way uh, towards creating a better society for all of us. And frankly, investing in things that we care about instead of building more prisons and jails, which is what we do now. And, and frankly, funding more police. Uh, we all, you know, we always say that here in America, politics is about putting Band-Aids on problems just to get to the next reelection. So um, we're going to take one more break, Amy. What we're going to do to get into our last you know, segment here of questions, we want to just get your thoughts on what we can do to maybe – uh, help to lobby our leaders and also help to educate our listeners and the community in general on how they should really perceive drugs and drug culture. So we're going to take one more break and we'll be right back, listeners. Would you like to contribute to a scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, Go to patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda Pod. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back here. Let's get into it. Our third segment. Remember, we're joined by Amy Fettick, Executive Director of the Sentencing Project. Um, Amy, as I was saying before our break, our third segment is just kind of about taking it forward here. Um, I'm a little bit maybe more progressive or maybe more liberal than some people think. Um, and I know that, you know, drug usage, no matter how we want to criminalize it, it's going to happen. You know, people are going to use drugs. I saw that when I lived in Los Angeles, Mississippi doesn't matter. People are going to use it. So in my mind, Amy, it seems like we really need to do something about, you know, proper drug usage in our country. So I guess my question for you here in this segment, you know, should we start teaching, you know, proper, you know, just like we teach, you know, sex ed or something like that? Should we also teach, you know, drug education, drug usage, you know, maybe to our, you know, students in, in school or maybe adults really to help try to, you know, bridge the gap here? Well, Adrian, I think that that is a really interesting idea. I mean, we talked at the beginning of this segment about, you know, the 1980s where we were teaching school kids, just say no. I mean, I remember that. Just say no. That was what, what uh, Nancy Reagan told us. And that doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. Across time and space, it doesn't work. Some people will use drugs. Um, some people will become addicted to drugs. Not everybody, but some people. And addiction to drugs is a really painful, painful thing to experience. Uh, and so I think we, we need multiple strategies. We need children to understand what drugs are, what they do, uh, what drug abuse actually means, uh, and, and how, how it can be handled through a public health lens. Uh, but we also have to make sure that people have access to the, to the, to 
treatment for substance use disorder. We still, in the 21st century, in 2021, we still have thousands and thousands and thousands of people who have substance use disorder who cannot get access to, to treatment. That's ridiculous. It is so much cheaper to provide drug treatment than it is to provide a jail cell. It, you just can't even compare them to. Uh, and frankly, people who are in the criminal justice, in prisons and jails, don't get access to drug treatment. I can't tell you how many clients I had over two decades. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of clients. So many had substance use disorder that they never got treatment for, either in the community or in prison or jail. And this is ridiculous. You are actually a captive population and you don't have access to the treatment you need to return home without going back to using. Uh, so, so so much of what we've done, we ha it's been self-inflicted wounds. So yes, I think better education. I think accepting that some portion of the population will use drugs. There's, zero tolerance is never going to make any sense. It's not going to be possible. Uh, drugs are part of our lives and we, we can figure out how to manage it safely. We can figure out how to ensure that people who do become addicted have an alternative, uh, have many alternatives, because we also know that that addiction is a, a, is a journey. It doesn't, you know, you don't solve it. You don't cure it overnight. Uh, people will relapse and they need to be able to do that safely. Um, I mean, just think of the, the massive increases in um, not only drug addiction, but deaths, overdose deaths. I mean, it is becoming a common feature of, of every single um, EMT and police uh, office that they have to deal with the fact that so many people are dying preventable deaths because we haven't given them the equipment that they need, either the person who has substance use disorder or the folks in the community to actually protect folks. I mean, we, these folks don't need to be dying. We, we can actually protect them in a much more forceful way. And we should, we should be doing everything we can to not only give folks access to treatment, but also to give them access to safety. And that, that definitely as in, in Germany and Portugal, you see that people have safe spaces in which to use drugs because we know they're going to. So why should we set them up to have to be unsafe and to possibly die when we know we could have prevented it? That's because we feel morally superior. Is that really? The, I mean, that's all I can think of that justifies that feeling morally superior to other human beings and thereby causing them to potentially die a preventable death. That's disgusting. And, you know, unfortunately, that is the attitude with a lot of things, public health, crime, or just overall equality when you're talking about giving people a fair shot at having a good life. We we come at it from the viewpoint of, I think some people describe it as like the mean stepfather of like, it's your problem, you figure it out, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That attitude has kind of seeped into all of our policy um, where it's it's just, you know, if you don't make it, hey, that's your fault. You didn't do the work that was necessary. And so, you know, like you like you say, we've made some park progress. You know, the reason behind why the opioid crisis is being treated differently 
it's probably not what a lot of people think. It's not so much that we may have learned from the 90s. It's much more so that the the victims of this particular crisis look different. You know, they're a little lighter. And so they've yeah. been treated differently. And we do see that, you know, we're starting to see more less people be arrested for, you know, possession of drugs, for selling drugs. The prison population is coming down slowly, but it's coming down. And so we are making progress slowly, but we're getting there. And so I guess just, you know, here in 2021, just kind of paint the picture of, you know, from your point of view, where do we, you know, we're making progress. So where are we making progress when it comes to drug policy? You can even say incarceration, mass incarceration, where are we making progress? And then kind of where the, where did the challenges remain in trying to, to get to where we are going? And just lastly, you know, quickly, just, you know, what do you expect from the Biden administration? You know, he has his own son who's got a substance abuse problem. So he's coming at it from a totally different perspective. Also, being the parent of someone who's got those problems. So just kind of tell us where we are, you know, right here in, in 2021. Yeah, I mean, there is reason for hope, Devin. Uh, we definitely aren't as bad as we used to be, but we're still not good. Uh, there is a lot of work to be done because, um, as we've talked about, the war on drugs has really been a proxy for a war on black people. And so it is extended far beyond people who are charged with drug crimes or people who are addicted uh, to, to drugs, who have a substance use disorder. Every aspect of our criminal justice system has been shaped by this lens of racism. Uh, and that lens of racism justified by a war on drugs, uh, justified as if we were helping people, uh, has led to an incarceration system, a criminal legal system that is the harshest, most punitive in the world, especially among our sister and brother nations, and has led to millions of Americans either being incarcerated right at this moment, being incarcerated at some point in their lives, having that negatively impact their life outcomes, having that negatively impact the outcome, life outcomes of their children and their children's children, uh, and decimating our communities. And so in order to really unwrap this horrible, nasty package that we've created for ourselves, we have to really start peeling back much of our criminal legal system. And I'm talking about overly harsh laws, sentencing laws for, for all crimes. People don't need to be in prison for life. As I mentioned before, we now have more people serving life in prison than at any other time in our history. More people serving life in prison than were in our entire prison system in 1970. Now the fastest growing population behind bars in this country is 55 and over because the legacy of the war on drugs has now left our grandpas and our grandmas to die in prison. So we need to actually repeal all those harsh sentencing laws. We need to give people a second chance to say, hey, I'm, they're no longer a, a, a threat to public safety. People age out of crime. We have decades of re research that demonstrates this. You know, the vast majority of crime is committed between the ages of 17 and 24. And then afterwards, regardless if you're American, Chinese, Russian, Indian, French, German, human beings age out of crime. So it makes no sense to keep people in prison for decades. So we, we got we to gotta peel that back. We got to undo the damage to the extent we can. And, we, and, and there's a lot of damage to undo. So that means 
shrinking our carceral state, shrinking the investments that we make in prisons and jails and police and prosecutors, and taking that money, and it's billions, billions of dollars, and investing it in communities that have been so directly impacted. And I'm talking about primarily black and brown communities and poor communities in this country that were targeted by the war on drugs. They were targeted by our criminal legal system. They continue to be targeted. We've got to take that money, reinvest it in these communities so that we can kind of, we can undo some of the damage. I'm, I'm talking about reparations here, reparations for the war on drugs or reparations for racism uh, reparations for the legacy of slavery that is our current system. Uh, we need that investment to undo the terrible damage that we've done uh, because our communities deserve to have that chance. I mean, we talked about, you know, the American dream. It's alive and well until something, if something goes wrong and then it's all your fault. Um, supporting our communities at, is about letting people have second chances and providing them the first chance. Uh, because for so many of our folks, criminal legal system took away the first chance. Uh, the game was rigged. And we need to stop telling that, that, that fairy tale that the game's not rigged. It absolutely is. And I think part of what we're also seeing in America is, you know, I mean, there are more white people in jail than there ever was before, too, because there's growing inequality. It's impacting all of us. That, uh, that top 1% is getting a heck of a lot, and the rest of us are getting very, very little. But the criminal justice system is all about policing people who are poor and people who are black. Um, so we need to undo that. You know, and I think that the Black Lives Matter movement that reemerged last year um, during the pandemic after the murder of George Floyd and so many others, uh, that provides us an important opportunity to build from uh, and, 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 and to, to push forward on the defund the police movement, uh, which at its heart is about reimagining public safety. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people are blaming the defund the police movement, but what we're talking about is reimagining public safety, reimagining community investment, uh, and frankly, stop targeting black people through the criminal legal system. You know, that's, we always say that's all we ask for. We just want to be treated as equal individuals, normal, regular, everyday citizens. Um, we don't need to have things handed on a silver platter, you know, or anything like that. So thank you, Amy, for saying that. Um, we're going to take one more break, Amy. I know we've been having a great conversation, but we just want to get your final message just to end our conversation here, which again is just your way to send our episode off to our listeners in a great big old bow. So listeners, stick with us. Uh, we'll be right back with Amy's final message. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda podcast. We appreciate your support and we ask that you like, share, and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, IG, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, 
listeners, welcome back here. Remember, we are joined today by Amy Fedick, Executive Director of the Sentencing Project, here to deliver her final message. Now, Amy, just to kind of set the stage, um, I think when when people in America hear drugs, they just, you know, just feel sore about it. It's almost like it strikes a core. People hear drugs and they think it's sinful. Um, they think it's something that should just be flat out, you know, outlawed. Um, some people just think marijuana is okay, but other drugs that we've talked about should just be criminalized. But, you know, as we've said, drugs are here to stay. People are going to use it just like, you know, teaching people abstinence didn't work. You got to teach them safe practices. Same thing applies to the drug industry. So, Amy, for your final message, just leave us with something that speaks to why America really must wake up to the reality of drug use and figure out a way to aid users rather than demonize them. But I think my bottom line message here, Adrian and, and Devin, is that we don't need to continue business as usual. We actually have information we need to do things differently. We know actually how to treat addiction. We know how to help people to not overdose. We know how to actually invest in public safety and infrastructure that will enrich our communities and provide a better playing field, even if it's not a completely equal one, uh, in which people can thrive and, and prosper. So we actually have the solutions. What we need to ask ourselves is, do we have the courage to actually demand those solutions from our political leaders? We have let them get off scot-free too long. We have to hold them accountable. We have to demand that they do better and that they do differently and not fall into those same traps of fear mongering race baiting and blaming others. Hold our political leaders accountable, pay attention, but also demand different solutions. You know, lock them up, throw away the key. We know that doesn't work. It's been 50 years. That's a bankrupt idea demand better ideas. We're, we're a huge and brilliant country. We got, we got some amazing people who can, who've done the research, uh, who are on the ground doing great work. Listen to them. We can create better solutions. We're not stuck with the old, tired, failed policies of the past. So it's time, time to actually roll up our sleeves, come together, demand better and vote. Vote, vote, vote. If you don't show up, you can't hold people accountable. And we got a lot of people in this country to hold accountable. And also to all the white people out there, and I know some of you are listening, it is about race. And it's about racism and privilege. But also sharing doesn't mean you lose anything. This is about actually giving to all of us. Don't be afraid to share. You learned this in kindergarten. It's still true. Share, care, and hold people accountable. Your political leaders for doing something differently. And, you know, 50, 50 years, really, it is enough. Yeah, that's a message. Um, you know, share, share, sharing is something we've all been taught, but I don't think a lot of people, are, you know, as adults, we're not comfortable with it. We feel like they don't, there's not a responsibility that's felt by a lot of people to do something. Um, and so 
and, and just, you know, I appreciate you being so blunt with it. You know, just saying that what we have tried, this is a, as usual, it's just not going to work. We have the data, we've got the studies, we've got the proof. The proof is there that, you know, prison is not an adequate treatment, you know, route to get people to become, you know, good and, and you know, uh, providing citizens of society, producing citizens of society. That's prison is not going to do that for us. Um, and so, and one thing I just, before, you know, hand it off to you, Adrian, I think it's, Thinking about it, when we're talking about drug abuse, we're talking about fixing, you know, helping people with addiction. You know, I think the first patient is the country who has an addiction to harshly punishing black people and locking, you know, locking us up. That's the first addiction we need to cure is ours, you know, to mm-hmm. using this iron fist, oh, zero yes. tolerance attitude towards crime. We have to turn, you know, look inward and fix that first. Um, so I just wanted to make sure we, you know, we, we put the title on the episode, The War on Drugs, but it's really, like you say, a war on Black people. You really could just mark out drugs and just put Black, and that's really what it is. And so, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you just, you just yes. have to do that now so really? people get the message. It's we can't on. be soft about it. We can't, yeah, we can't, we can't dance around the issue because that's what's gotten us here, is people not being honest about the intentions of these projects the war on drugs and what was actually, you know, motivating people to pass these laws and these harsher sentences. So I thank you, Amy. Thank you for, for putting that message out there bluntly. And it's not coming from me, Adrian. You know, Amy, you are from, <laughs> obviously, you're not as melanated as us. And so you are the messenger here to let folks know that it does, you don't have to be black to understand what the war on drugs has done and mass incarceration has done to our communities and what needs to be done. To, to fix it. And so I just thank you for bringing that message, you know, onto the show. Well, thank you for yeah, having me. Amy- <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. I just want to say thank you for being with us. It was such a, such, you know, wonderful conversation. Um, we need more and more people to have these sorts of conversations. Um, so we won't hold you any longer. Um, we're going to take our, Devin and I, we just take our last break just for our listeners, but um, listeners stick with us. Remember you've been joined today or rather we've been joined today and you've gotten the pleasure of listening to Miss Amy Fedding, executive director of the sentencing project, talking about the war on drugs, AKA the war on black people. But all we're going to do, like I said, is take our last break. So stick with us. We'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guess and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda Pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So, as always, we like to end the show with giving you a look forward as to what is upcoming on the show. Uh, so, first up, we'll be back with you on Saturday. We'll be bringing you all the news during weekly roundup number 10. And so, that's our chance to bring you all the news from the past week, whether it's funny, uh, newsworthy, breaking news. We try to put it all to you in about an hour segment. Uh, where we kind of let you, you know, let you know what's going on in the world around you. So make sure you tune in for that weekly roundup number 10 coming to you Saturday, August 21st. And then after that, on Tuesday, 
August 24th. That'll be our next regularly scheduled interview. And this time we'll be discussing prison reform. And so after discussing, we've talked about marijuana, we've talked about the war on drugs, and we're going to continue this theme here with talking about prison reform. That is the last thing here, um, because it is a big part of those two things. Marijuana and drug, you know, drug, the war on drugs have led to a huge explosion in our prison population. And it's time that we try to talk about it and see what we can do to fix it. And we're going to be joined on the show by Mr. Khalil, a Cumberbatch of the Council on Criminal Justice. And he's going to give us his take on what needs to be done for us to achieve criminal justice uh, or prison reform, rather. And so make sure you tune in for that August 24th, Tuesday. Uh, It's going to be another great episode. And so, again, we say it every show, but we appreciate you listening and, and helping us and supporting us. But you can also donate to us. There are some ways for you to give your hard earned money to us to help us advance some of the causes that we're trying to push. And agent's going to let you know how you can do that. Absolutely. Um, easiest thing to do is go to blackagendapod.com, click the donate tab and start giving. But Hey, I'm not going to let you go easy by just telling you how to give. I got to tell you why you should be giving. Um, basically we're trying to do something real here. Um, we're not just trying to have conversations with awesome people like Amy Fettig, uh, and Khalil Cumberbatch. We're actually trying to create something that's going to have movement within Congress, have movement within our communities, um, have movement with actually getting our society to a better place. Um, as Devin said, we've got an epidemic, uh, addiction to locking up black people and it takes dollars and cents to kind of fight that. And we want to be a part of the fight. So like I said, go to our website, blackagendapie.com and click that donate tab. Your donation shows us that you also care about fighting, you know, for prison reform, fighting for the war on drugs, fighting for marijuana reform. By doing that, it shows us that what we're doing actually matters. So, like I said, go to that uh, our website, blackagendapod.com, and click that Donate tab so we can know how much we're doing, what we're doing actually matters to you. The other thing we like to do is highlight a charity of the month. And for the month of August, we have chosen the organization Choose 180. Choose 180 transforms the lives of youth and young adults by partnering with institutional leaders, connecting with the community, empowering them with choice, and teaching them the skills necessary to avoid engagement with the criminal legal system. Choose 180 envisions a future where youth behavior is decriminalized and young people are offered restorative practices in lieu of traditional prosecution. In place of the school-to-prison pipeline, a community will exist to help young people realize their potential and provide them with the tools necessary to achieve their goals. So awesome, awesome organization. Go check them out. Choose180.org. Like I said, go to blackagendapod.com, click that donate tab and start giving. That's right. Start giving, like Adrian said. So uh, before we go, we wanted to give one last thanks to uh, Amy Fettig from the Sentencing Project. She was amazing and she gave us some good, some really good history on the war on drugs here in America, but really the war on drugs in the black community. And so also, we, you know, we're not going to let you go without, let, without telling you, but make sure you follow us on social media. Um, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. At Black Agenda Pod is our handle. Again, that's at Black Agenda Pod. You can also search for us on YouTube. Just search the Black Agenda Podcast and you'll find a nice, nice catalog of interviews that we've done uh, from the time that we've started. We've got 10 interviews with HBCU administrators, a very good conversation 
on critical race theory. So make sure you go and check that out um, on YouTube. Again, just search for the Black Agenda podcast. And so, again, for me and Adrian, we thank you for your support, whether that's monetarily or just you downloading the podcast and listening. Uh, But until uh, Saturday, we'll catch you next time. 